is that men's retreat announcement not the eeriest thing you've ever watched in your life. <laughs> every, every time I watch it, I hope it's going to pan back to, like, Terrence just walking through a field with his hand out. But it doesn't happen. But I love Gladiator. The men's retreat's theme, I don't think anybody's mentioned it, is Gladiator. So I'm looking forward to sometime this week watching Gladiator. Maybe even in the office, right? It's prep for the men's retreat. So whatever. I'm going I'm to I'm fit it in somehow, some way. But uh, we, we do. We, we love some movies. Pastor Fred is, uh, uh, he's a movie snob. Let's be serious. But uh, we talk about it often in the office, talking about movies and whatnot. So we're starting something called Stranger Things tonight. Some of you walked in and you're like, is it Christmas? What's going on here? Why is that not even strung well? But Stranger Things. Sometimes I say that and some of you are thinking immediately a million different directions we could go for a, a sermon series. Some of you are like, the only strange thing about Stranger Things is I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, it doesn't matter whether you know what I'm talking about or not. We're, we're happy you're here. Stranger Things is a Netflix series. It's kind of like a coming-of-age tale. It's a, honestly, there's a little horror in it. And then it's a massive, giant, huge, basically shout-out to the 1980s. How many of y'all were, like, in your heyday in the 80s, Right. Hey, Nate, uh, he recommended, so maybe he's saying something about Nate. He recommended a, a like, five-minute video where it's footage from movies from the 80s on one side, and then on the other side, it's Stranger Things, all these different scenes, all these different shots that kind of mimic the movies, all these different characters that are similar to 80s characters, all these different moments that are similar to moments in 80s movies. And for some people that would watch that, that's like that sparks nostalgia on steroids. For me, that's like research. Because uh, I, I was an 80s baby. I was born in the 80s. I wasn't spending my time in movie theaters. I was spending my time in a sandbox. So I've been catching up ever since, right? Star Wars, never-ending story, uh, Princess Bride, Predator, Alien, Goonies, Top Gun. What am I missing? Ferris Bueller's Day Off. What else? Stand by me. Steph, take notes. I haven't seen some of these. Breakfast Club, 16 Candles. Little Monsters, Anthony's apparently got a top 10 list if you want to hit him up after service. <laughs> anybody know, though, does anybody know what the top grossing movie of the 1980s was? E.T.? It is. Do you know what, who said it? Any, uh, do you know what the other two are? Top three? It's from a trilogy. Star Wars, yeah. So E.T. and Star Wars, and because we're going to be feeling a lot of nostalgia, I got a giveaway. We, we, did you have it? Own it? Blu-ray? E.T.? It's for you. Take it home. Enjoy. Spark up the nostalgia. You're welcome. But, uh, yeah, so th there's a ton of shout-outs in this series to E.T. They spend their time on bikes like they lived on their bike. I was more of a 90s baby, but I, I lived on my bike, too. There's a lot of biking through suburbia, walking your bike through the wilderness, even those scenes where you're being chased by the feds and you're running on your bike, right? All of that happens in this series. The, the strange life form taking residence in one of their homes, right? Just... Uh, exploring the house while nobody's there, and at one point wearing a costume with a blonde wig. Shout-outs to E.T. are throughout this series. And some of you are like, you're a little excited about this series. And just a plug, this isn't an endorsement of the series. I'm not saying go home and watch this with your, with your kids and have, like, a family night. Uh, it's, well, it's eight episodes, so you'd be pulling an all-nighter. And then also we're just not championing the show in that way. And another thing, we're not doing the, uh, what is it, like the... Biblical gymnastics, can I say. The uh, twisting truth like a pretzel so you can find spiritual imagery in secular art. Like, you go to Barnes & Noble, there's probably all kinds of books called 
the gospel according to Harry Potter, right? The gospel according to Lost. The gospel according to Hunger Games. There's probably a, a gospel according to Daniel the Tiger, right? There's, there's probably one right now, the gospel according to Star Wars, where it's like Ben, Kenobi, and Luke, and Yoda are the Holy Trinity. And I'm like, I, I look at those books, and I'm like, George Lucas is not C.S. Lewis. That's not what he was going for here. So this is not the gospel according to Stranger Things. Sorry to burst your bubble if that's where you hoped I was going. But uh, we've seen this summer, movie after movie, millions invested in them, all kinds of hype, and they just flop again and again and again. And this show took off to the point where there's like a community of people that have watched it. And, and the question is why? What about this series made it take off the way it did? I was studying for this series at Starbucks. I like to go there often and, and get some studying in. And, and I was getting up to use the, the restroom and I was walking past the table and here's a young gentleman watching the show on his laptop. Almost unplugged his headsets and pulled up a chair and was like, hey, can we watch together? Because it's a good show. It's about to become, if it's not there yet, the most watched show on Netflix ever, which is kind of a big deal because Netflix is kind of a big deal. But again, if you haven't watched it, don't worry about it. You don't have to. This might confuse you. Nothing about my sermon will confuse you. It's going to be heavy doses of Jesus. But a quick plot synopsis by yours truly, the former English major that wrote a lot of book reports. So here's a movie report. You know, the plot follows the disappearance of a young boy in a small town where everyone knows everyone and a telekinetic girl who helps his friends in their search while the boy's older brother, mother, and town police chief start their own investigations that lead them to suspect dark government agencies and seemingly malevolent supernatural forces centered in the U.S. Department of Energy lab at the heart of the town. So this show got so big that our U.S. Department of Energy, www.energy.gov, released an article to let the public know that we're actually not up to no good. There were five points to this article, five points to this article that they released on the Internet, on their website, that Hawkins National Lab, it doesn't exist. The Energy Department doesn't explore parallel universes. The Energy Department does not mess with monsters. National lab scientists aren't evil, they're actually quite nice. And lights are not powered by monsters and other life forms. But in this show, all kinds of crazy things come out of this building surrounded by tight security and a big old fence, including this girl who, whose only name she knows is the number 11. And so I, as I'm studying for this, this sermon series and, and reflecting on the series Stranger Things, I thought of this short story I, I once read where it's about a, a woman who gives birth to a son who's blind. And she doesn't want him to know he's blind, so she forbids that anybody use any kind of adjectives that would clue him into what he's missing out on. She didn't want anybody to say the word color, say light, or say sight. So she successfully insulates him, right? Make sure nobody says any of these things around him. And then one day he's outside and a girl jumps the fence introduces herself, gets to know him, and then she uses all these forbidden words. And the boy's entire world, his whole perspective shatters in the face of this unimagined new reality. You know, in modern times, Christians often resemble that strange girl who brings this message from the other side of the fence, that there's an, another reality. There's an unseen world that you aren't even considering. At least that should be us. But you know, too often, I feel like we as the church, we can limit the supernatural to a fenced-in area because the supernatural, God moving, can sometimes be potentially strange and it's extraordinary. 
And we can compartmentalize it to a weekend service or a conference or a retreat, whatever we might compartmentalize it to. But, you know, in this show, the supernatural gets outside of the fence. And God would invite his church. He would invite us tonight to let him outside of the fence. He wants to get outside the fence we've compartmentalized him with. Quit putting limits on God. Take a step outside of the ordinary. You know, Christianity, again, it brings rumors of another dimension on the other side of the fence, of a supernatural God who is active, even in the seemingly ordinary events of our lives. So that's the basis for this series. And if it's too late to put a sermon title, if you're taking notes, just this week is called Stranger King. Stranger King. Because at the heart of this Christianity that brings rumors of another world is Jesus Christ. This is a man who changed the world, changed history as we know it. He split history in half from before Christ and after Christ. And you can gauge the size of a ship by the wake it leaves behind. So by that measure, Jesus as a figure proverbially is the size of 10 Titanics. To some, though, he's just a, a nice teacher. He's a, he's a guy who taught well. He was a good moral teacher, kind of like, think like Mr. Rogers, but a couple thousand years ago in Palestine. That was, that was Jesus. Like, he was admirable, but that's it. But here's the thing. We don't devote our lives to follow Jesus simply because of good teaching. Jesus didn't give a bunch of witty proverbs and just advice on how to live better. He did more. He did and said things that ordinary people don't do. He crosses the line into and beyond extraordinary, into sometimes downright strange. Not just once or twice, throughout the Gospels. He wasn't Mr. Rogers. He was more like Billy Graham with five of the Avengers superpowers, right? He wasn't just teaching. He was multiplying food, walking on water, raising people from the dead, raising himself from the dead. This Jesus wasn't the Jesus we often see portrayed, which is predictable and ordinary and tamed. That couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was so extraordinary and often strange that in Mark 3, his own family said he's out of his mind. <laughs> he is out of his mind. Bottom line, either Jesus is out of his mind and crazy, or he's a liar, or he's exactly who he says he is. He's God in the flesh. When you read the Gospels, there's really no other choices. You know, there's a quote by Frederick Buchner I'm going to read that it cracks me up because it starts like this. It says, if the world is sane, then Jesus is mad as a hatter. And the Last Supper is the mad tea party. Because the world says, mind your own business. And Jesus says, there is no such thing as your own business. The world says, follow the wisest course and be a success. Jesus says, follow me and be crucified. The world says, drive carefully. The life you save may be your own. And Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says, get. And Jesus says, give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is crazy as a coot. And anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy, too, is laboring less under the cross than under a delusion. We are fools for Christ's sake, Paul says. Faith says that ultimately the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The lunacy of Jesus saner than the grim sanity of the world. It's quite a quote. And I do love that first line. If the world is sane, then Jesus is mad as a hatter and the Last Supper is the mad tea party. But when I read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't strike me as a hat person. Matter of fact, you read the Gospels, what is the only thing that Jesus wears on his head? Crown of thorns. A crown. You know, the saying goes, heavy is the head, 
that wears the crown. At least that's how the hip-hop people quote it. Shakespeare, in the original Shakespeare, it says, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. You know, though, perhaps one person lives with more unease than the head that, that actually wears the crown. And that would be the person who claims to be king when nobody else recognizes it. Time and time again, history has shown that it's not too kind to those people. Right? Failed would-be kings, they don't get to apologize and go back to their life as it was. Often they lose the head they wanted to rock the crown on. You know, if I just throw myself a, a crown on my head and declare myself king, it doesn't mean much. It might mean I'm a little crazy, though. You know, I, uh, Fred and Jamie and myself, we're invited to Newport News City Council often to just open the, the meeting in prayer. So we do that often, maybe once every three months or so. And you go, it's a lot of talk about zoning and stuff. So you pray. You go to the back, pay my respects, and I'm out. But uh, the last two times I've gone, there's a gentleman there, an older gentleman, who wears a crown. Not a Burger King crown. Not like the little crowns you see the, the kids made where it says, like, I am, I don't know what it says, but it's not like paper, it's not stapled. It's like a legit, it looks like it's off a Hollywood uh, movie lot. Like, it, it looks pretty legit, and he wears it with casual clothes. One, one time it was just a red T-shirt and sweats. This dude rocking a crown, and I always, I, I always, he tempts me to stay. Usually I got a life group to go back to, but I'm like, what is this guy here for? Like, can you imagine if they're in the middle of the city council meeting, and he stands up and he says, behold, he who has an ear, let him hear. I am Lord and King, and you should place your faith in me. My kingdom has come. Like, you would assume he is certifiably insane, right? Again, if I wear a crown and declare myself king, doesn't say much about me, other than I'm probably a little crazy, or it's Halloween. But Jesus wasn't just called crazy by some. He was followed by many. He turned heads, and he changed history. Because everything he said, he backed up with signs and wonders and wisdom. So we have Jesus, a poor carpenter, a carpenter's son from an off-the-grid rural town who found himself crucified by the Roman government with the charge hung over his head, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And from his arrest in John chapter 18 to his trial before Pilate that led to the crucifixion, in John 18, the word king occurs some dozen times. I believe John does this on purpose. Because here you've got Jesus, the self-proclaimed king, Christ, who finds himself before Pontius Pilate, the local Roman governor, before his crucifixion. And Pilate's first question to Jesus, are you king of the Jews, is loaded with meaning. No Jew had carried that title for centuries, and Rome had authorized no king since it instituted the governors. The fact Jesus was referred to as Christ, a king, would have had Pilate's full attention. Was he another terrorist revolutionary ready to incite some kind of violent riot? But you see, Jesus' response in John chapter 18, verse 36. I'm going to read the New Living Translation. I'm actually going to read into verse 37. Jesus answered Pilate, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. Jesus says, my kingdom is not a political one. It's not some threat to Rome. It's not of this world. But Pilate presses further because anybody who claimed to be king, they could still be indicted. But ultimately, right, he crucifies Jesus again with this, the name king over his head almost recognizing and endorsing it as something that was meaningless 
to Rome. But in a deeper reality, it couldn't have been more meaningful. It was profoundly meaningful. The crucifixion was Jesus' coronation. And the tragedy isn't that Jesus died and was crucified. That's why he came. He was in full control. He went to the cross knowing the consequences. The tragedy is a human tragedy. As we witness futile and tragic efforts of people blinded by darkness, unable to see the king in their midst. This is a struggle that still happens today. That goes on today. It's not Jesus' fault or from some lack of mention. He spoke of his kingdom again and again in the Gospels. The book of Matthew alone, he speaks of his kingdom some 55 times. And he stresses, though, again and again and again that it's not of this world. The kingdom Jesus ushers in is uncompromisingly supernatural. You know, if we take away the supernatural, we take away the Christianity that Jesus preached to us. There was an author and speaker. His name was Morton Kelsey. He once cut out all the verses in the New Testament that dealt with the unseen world, that dealt with the heavens or the invisible, the things we can't see. The book barely held together as he cut out one-third of the 7,000 verses. And he would use this Bible to show people how far we, the modern church, have strayed from the emphasis of the New Testament on the supernatural. Because, again, if you take away the supernatural, you take away Christianity. Yet our culture... You look at our culture around us, it's fascinated with the supernatural. You see that with the, the series Stranger Things. Or, or, or maybe you are like Steph and I, like a date night for Steph and I, we're homebodies. Probably only going to get worse when we, when we get Titus or Raj, you know. When he comes over, it's going to be even worse. But a date night for us is like, let's go get Thai food, pick up a red box, come home and just chill on our couch. So we're often on Redbox. And I don't know how often you open the Redbox app, but I would swear 50% of those movies are horror flicks. 99% of them deal with the supernatural, and about 99.9% of them don't look any good. But there's plenty, tons of these kind of movies on Redbox. And just if you look at the history of the genre, horror and fantasy in film and television, it borrows from the traditional hellfire and brimstone sermons from the 17th and 18th century. And the idea that there's some horrific supernatural realm beyond this world. Writers like Nathaniel Hawthorne and the poet William Blake, they picked up on some of those themes, some of those uh, uh, thoughts, and they, they popularized them in fictional form through prose and through poetry, and they removed them from the exclusivity of religion. And now they saturate our film. They saturate our culture. But it all goes deeper than outside influence. We have a natural hunger for the supernatural because we're created in God's image. We're more than physical beings. We have a soul. We're spiritual beings. And this manifests itself in our, in our pursuits of natural things to help fill that void, but it also manifests itself in our culture's nod to the supernatural. Super spirituality, again, and supernatural, it's in. Shows like Stranger Things, they attract massive followings. And it's odd because the church finds itself in this odd place of playing catch up with the culture. Because again, like I said earlier, many Christians, when it comes to God affecting the here and now, or them having any perception of the supernatural, we, we function as Christian atheists. Practicing his presence, man, sometimes I have a hard enough time practicing his existence in the day-to-day. -day. Craig Rochelle, he, he wrote a book years and years ago, maybe even a decade ago by now, time flies. It was called Christian Atheists. The premise was this, believing in God but living as if he doesn't exist. Chapters were like, believe in God but you don't pray. You believe in God, but you don't believe he loves you. You believe in God, but you don't forgive. You believe in God, but you don't love his church. All these believe in God, but. And I would 
propose tonight that many of us believe in God, but we put this fence around the supernatural. We limit God. Christians in the church, man, we'll fight tooth and nail to defend the, the supernatural miraculous in Scripture. And yet, so often we don't live with an awareness or expectation of that to happen today under the same God. Again, you take the, the Christianity, the Bible, you read about it, you read the Bible, you realize it is a religion that is strongly supernatural, uncompromisingly so. And if we take away the supernatural, we take away Christianity. You know, T.S. Eliot, he has a great quote. He says, excuse me, to believe in the supernatural is not simply to believe that after living a successful, material, and fairly virtuous life here, one will continue to exist in the best possible substitute for this world, or that after living a starved and stunted life here, one will be compensated with all the good things one has gone without. It is to believe that the supernatural is the greatest reality here and now. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The question is, how do I fix my eyes on the invisible and the unseen. You know, I had a lot of friends in high school that were Catholic. The cross I'm wearing right now, it's got the Stations of the Cross on it. One of their moms gave it to me. I got rosaries that their moms would give me because they would invite me out to Mass. They would invite me out to Holy Hour, and I went to a bunch of them, right? And the Catholics talk a lot about sacraments, the sacrament of marriage, the sacrament of baptism, confession, all all these different sacraments. You look at that word, sacrament, sacramental. The Latin word sacramentum literally means a sign of the sacred. You just break down that word, sacramental. It's the sacred and the mental. To keep the sacred mental. To keep it in mind. Again, you look at Colossians. Paul's writing in chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things above. You know, I would go into those services, and I believed in God. I've shared this before. As a teenager, I, I believed he existed. I just wasn't following him. And I would leave those services, and I would shut that door and it would be compartmentalized. And I'd go back out into the louder realities of the world as the sacred and the supernatural and the spiritual faded into the background again. Again, the question is, how can I live out my belief in an unseen world in the midst of this one? Because we're called to make the supernatural our natural, our perspective. We're called out of the ordinary. But the question is, how? How do I walk that out in life? And the first thing I would tell us is that we have to plug in. Plug in. Philip Yancey said the siren calls of the visible world drown out whispers from the unseen world. Again, I would leave those those services with my friends and the siren calls of the visible world would drown out whispers from the unseen world. Noise in this world can drown out God's voice. But again, we, we believe in a faith that, as it says in the Bible, is certain of what we do not see. And it brings those two worlds together. It keeps the sacred in mind. You know, if, if God seems silent, and in youth ministry, I used to have all these youth, man, I just don't hear God's voice. I don't sense his presence. Like, go plug your phone into a charger on the other side of your house. Turn your TV off. Get in your Bible. Saturate yourself in Scripture. Prioritize his presence. And you, you'll begin to hear his voice. You will renew your mind. Romans 12, 2 talks about renewing our minds and this act of worship that it is. I think sometimes we can get this perspective that worship is a weekend service, and it's the only time we experience God's presence. There's 
a low-key, mild danger in, in always singing songs that in, invite God's presence here. We do it again and again. And it's because, you see, in the Bible, there are times where God's presence is palpable, where his, his glory is overwhelming. We should pursue those times, but we also need to have a perspective that God is here, there, and everywhere. You read Genesis 32, Jacob is traveling from point A to point B, and he, spent, he takes a nap, falls asleep, and he wakes up from this dream, and he realizes, man, God was here all this time, and I just wasn't aware of it. And you know what? We can live unaware of the unseen, unaware that, that at any moment, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the veil being torn, we can plug into God's presence through his word, through prayer. And you know, when you plug in, you become, a, you become aware of two things that we often don't keep at the forefront of our mind. The first is the Holy Spirit, the forgotten member of the Trinity. You know, we made brief mention of Romans 12, 2 and the renewing of our minds. The only other time Paul uses that word renew is in Titus 3, 5, where he says, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, renewal is supremely necessary, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit renews the mind, and that renewal isn't a one-time deal. It's constant. I don't need grace once. I need grace every day of my life. I don't need renewal once. I need to be renewed constantly every day of my life. But I think oftentimes we treat the Holy Spirit like a temporary add-on or an afterthought instead of God in us. We treat him like a gas pump. We go to him when we feel empty. But the Holy Spirit is like air. He's all around us at all times. We need him at all times, and he's always here. Ephesians 1 says, when you believed in Christ, he gave you the Holy Spirit, the deposit of God. But then he goes on to say in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's continuous. It's both. He's here at first spiritual breath, and you need to continue breathing. He's renewed us, but he continues renewing us. That's why Billy Graham, I love this quote by Billy Graham. He says, the spirit-filled life is not abnormal. It is the normal Christian life. Anything less is abnormal. It is less than what God wants and provides for his children. Therefore, to be filled with the Spirit should never be thought of as an unusual or unique experience for or known by a select few. It is intended for all, needed by all, and available to all. That is why Scripture commands all of us, be filled with the Spirit. Come on, we can't forget the power of the Holy Spirit in us to renew us. Jesus calls it our counselor. He'll guide us through all truth as we saturate ourselves in Scripture. As we prioritize prayer, the Holy Spirit will work in us. But then again, as you plug in, you become aware of another thing, of powers and principalities. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world and evil spirits in the heavenly realms. You know, in life... We often experience evil and just twisted stuff that can't be resolved by science or evolution, can't be defined by, by politics. And these episodes, they often get chalked up as, as forces beyond our control, forces that are beyond explanation. You know, the, the Bible would agree, the New Testament would, writers would agree with this idea that they're beyond our control, but... They don't hesitate to identify and give an explanation for them. There's powers, there's principalities in this unseen world. And again, movies, they run to capitalize on the fire and the brimstone. 
But while our culture is fascinated by supernatural evils, we should be fueled by a focus on the solution to that evil. You know, the solution is not confronting people that live differently and, and seeing them as the enemy. Because our goal isn't to battle them. It's in Christ to rescue them. You know, in a combative culture, the church has adopted this combative stance with, with sharing our faith, where we draw battle lines. One that's big on aggression, but it's light on empathy. You know, in the Bible, it says, in 1 Samuel, we love this verse. It says, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we love to apply that to virtuous people. But what about the people that aren't walking in virtue yet, right? People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. They have a heart with a void that God wants to fill, that the enemy is battling over. And they're not the enemy. We judge by what is visible, but the invisible truth of Ephesians 6 reminds us that our battle isn't against people. Our rescue mission is for people, and that's all affected by the unseen. You know, not long after Paul tells the Romans to renew their minds, he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Not with aggression, but with good. But you know, to do that and to walk that out, we need to go. So we need to plug in and we need to go out. You know, again, in modern times, Christians resemble the strange girl 11, who brings a message from the other side of the fence, a God calling us out of the ordinary. At least we should. We should resemble her. You know, as we dedicate ourselves to Scripture, we realize more and more that earth isn't our home. Philippians 3.20 says, we are citizens of heaven where Lord Jesus Christ lives. You know, just because earth isn't home, we've said this before, just because earth isn't home, we don't treat it like a hotel. We're called to invest and sow into this world. We have a dual citizenship. Christians, we, we live in light of another dimension, but we daily commute work to here on earth. And everybody said, amen. <laughs> and work we do. But, you know, I think sometimes we get so caught up in our daily bread and earning our daily bread and receiving our daily bread that we forget the verse right before that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we've all got an usher ministry to usher in God's kingdom here and now. Like we've talked about tonight, we're not called to let go of the supernatural and embrace the natural. We've hit on that. But we also aren't called to flee from the world. We're called to bring the two together, to reconnect life to the wholeness that God intended. Jesus certainly didn't see life as divided or compartmentalized or fenced in. It was two worlds powerfully and profoundly united. But how many of you guys have ever heard this phrase, right? Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Anybody ever heard that? I remember I heard that as a, a young believer. I was like, oh, yeah, that rings true. Because you think of, like, the, the just quirky Christians that are just out of touch with reality, and they're almost like holy hermits. And you're like, yeah, I could see that. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of earthly good. But if you reflect on life more, you know, C.S. Lewis has a great line that if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for this present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. You know, those that are heavenly minded will do earthly good. That, again, is something out of our summer series. It's a dumb dichotomy. It's a false choice. Your faith should be big enough for both, that you're heavenly minded and you do earthly good. To set your mind on things above isn't the equivalency of sticking your head in the sand in the present or avoiding responsibility here on earth. 
We prove our belief in the unseen through our actions here and now. In no way does the affirmation of supernatural devalue our investment in the natural. In fact, it calls us to it. And in a world and a culture that affirms the supernatural with its content, it presents an opportunity. You know, we talk about as you plug in, you become aware of the Holy Spirit and powers and principalities. As you go out, you become aware of this opportunity. In Acts 17, the story of Paul on Mars Hill, it serves as a model for our witness within our current culture. Paul began with that particular culture's interest in the paranormal and the supernatural, and he went on to point his listeners to Jesus. In verse 23 of the message version, Paul says, hey, I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently and know who you're dealing with. You know, our culture, like the one in Athens, the one on Mars Hill, is hungry for the supernatural. Again, it's built into every man. We're created in the image of God. We're physical beings and spiritual beings. But where our culture feeds on spiritual junk food, may we point to the true, fulfilling, vital, life-changing encounter with the divine, with Jesus Christ. You know, you read the book of Acts, and in Acts it says that when the religious leaders saw the courage of the disciples and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Jesus, this mad hatter, this crazed king, this lord of the seen and the unseen, this God-made man, they had spent time with Jesus. And Jesus God, he loves to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He loves to call ordinary people to do the extraordinary. People who let the supernatural become the natural frame of mind. Natural people who live with an expectation that, hey, God wants to do the supernatural today, here and now. They take down whatever fences they limited him with, and they give him room to move. So if I got the worship team come up, I just want to close with a question that hopefully we can ask and take this and run with it, take it and apply it. Do I live with a healthy expectation of the supernatural? Do I live with a healthy expectation that God doesn't just want to be Lord over my life, he wants to be active in my life. He cares about every detail. He wants to be active in every detail as I submit it to him, this living act of worship. Again, Christianity is a supernatural faith. And a church service at It isn't just to come and experience God. That's a good thing. You should come to church with an expectation that you're going to experience God. But it's also that we can experience and be equipped by the Holy Spirit so that we can take God with us week to week, day to day. That we can go home and walk it out. You know what's natural? Coming into a church service, singing some songs, sitting down, listening to somebody talk, and going home. Pretty natural. What's supernatural? The book of Acts. The kingdom Jesus ushered in, turning the world upside down through the work of the Holy Spirit through his church. Again, God is calling us out of the ordinary to let the supernatural be our natural. To let the sacred come to mind more often. That God is up to something every day, every moment, and he wants to use me. He wants to use you. He wants to use his church. May that affect our prayer lives. May that affect our fellowship, our conversation. May that affect our focus when we're in the word. May that affect every aspect of our life. You know, sometimes we live a lot like whales. (laughs) We come up every now and again 
to get air, to live, to stay alive, and then we descend back into the dark and cold reality that we're more acquainted with. We do life here, and then the spiritual is over there on a weekend or at a church or in a couple hours in the morning before we go out and again embrace that loud reality that so often drowns out the whispers of God. But we aren't called to live a cold and cordless Christianity. We're called to be plugged in, to live as dual citizens. And you know, I shared a couple weeks ago when we were preaching on Ezra, sometimes the hardest part for me, preaching a sermon, meditating on something all week is, man, am I really living this? Is this something I'm walking out before I preach it? And I had to reflect on my own life. Where am I not prioritizing God's presence? Where am I not keeping in mind him moment by moment? How can I live better this idea of, of keeping the sacred in mind, setting my mind on things above? And I realized, man, I need to reprioritize my pursuit. I need to reprioritize the constant renewing of my mind because I, for me and I believe for all of us, if we look at our lives, there are areas where we live like Christian atheists. We believe in God and yet we live as if he doesn't exist in this area. So if we could stand, we're going to go into worship. We're going to sing, lead me to the cross. And just ask this question. I believe the spirit is going to move. Am I living with an expectation of the supernatural? Or do I have God fenced in? Where am I living like a Christian atheist? Do I believe in God, but I, don't, I know I don't pray as much as I should. I believe in God, but I don't pursue him through his word. I believe in God, but I don't get rooted with other believers. I don't know what it is for you. I know I looked at my life this week and I realized, hey, some things need to change. So as we worship, as we, as we sing, and as we praise, come on, let's ask ourselves those questions. Then we'll come back in a moment to pray together. Let's sing, lead me to the cross.